Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. One of my favorite scenes in Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings uh, comes within the second film entitled The Two Towers. Uh, If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, uh, the men of Gondor are under attack by the terrorist-like forces of darkness and are eventually crammed into this boxed canyon that has a large, strong fortress located within it. Uh, entitled uh, Helm's Deep. It's their last option. They have nowhere else to go. Anyway, uh, in order to secure themselves for this battle, uh, Gandalf, the white wizard, who's a Christ-like figure who has, like Christ, already died and risen again, uh, rides away from Helm's Deep in order to summon other troops to help uh, with the cause. Uh, But uh, Gandalf doesn't leave the terrified, straggling army at the fortress without a word of promise, a word of hope. Uh, He says to all of them, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. So Gandalf is here predicting his return. He vows to these people non-abandonment. They won't be left as orphans that he'll come to them at at a key and important and predictable moment. Uh, That prophecy is a a kindness in the book. What's fascinating is that almost everyone forgets about it and is shocked when he finally appears. Well, Jesus is now in our lesson tonight from Luke's gospel toward the end of his uh, public life and He's in a place that uh, some people would uh, maybe call depression, but he's not, uh, he's not speaking as uh, glowingly or as positively about various topics as he was earlier in his ministry. His parables are darker. His teaching is far more foreboding. And here he is sitting in the temple, this place of great religious fervor and controversy, and he's speaking very bluntly about things that uh, will occur in the future. Uh, and so he, he offers these predictions of upheaval, but also the end of upheaval. And so I want to speak tonight about this passage uh, using three different words to describe what's happening here. I want to talk about chronology, chaos, and consummation. A chronology, chaos, and consummation. Uh, and I'm going to be jumping to the end of the passage first because chronology is actually the most controversial part of our passage tonight, and I thought I would square with it immediately so we could move on to the heart of the matter. Let's deal with chronology because he says something in verse 32 that is very controversial. This is what he says in verse 32. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Now, our lesson tonight is a very small snippet of the larger teaching that Jesus is offering in this chapter about apocalypticism 
and about his role in that apocalypticism. And Jesus makes many predictions, including, but not limited to, the destruction of the Jewish temple built by Herod the Great, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the world, (laughs) along with the coming of the Son of Man. So he covers a variety of important themes and subjects. Now, this particular verse caused Albert Schweitzer, who was a very prominent theologian and missiologist, actually, and missionary, from yesteryear to completely lose his confidence in the New Testament. Because Schweitzer read this passage and said, quite despairingly, Jesus predicted his own return within a decade of his death. He said this generation would not pass away until all of these things had taken place. Clearly, the coming of the Son of Man, as he predicted, has not occurred. And therefore, he was wrong. And therefore, the New Testament is wrong. And therefore, everything falls apart. That was Schweitzer's takeaway that he made, by the way, with great sorrow and not with a sort of a, a, a plucky irreverence. It wasn't like that. He was very sorrowful about it. I wish he was around now because I can explain this and I, I would be able to help him. I would really help him. Um, so here's the interpretive issue regarding chronology. Here's the interpretive issue. What does this generation mean? This generation will not pass away. What does this generation mean? Here are three options. Guess which one is correct? The third. Well, option one, Jesus is only referring to the first century, his hearers that day. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. The pros uh, for that position are that many of the things Jesus talked about in the extended discourse here did take place within the first century. Like, for example, the destruction of the temple, 69 or 70 AD, along with Jerusalem, nearly at that same time. That took place within the first century. And many of the people to whom Jesus was speaking that day would have witnessed it. Many would have died in it. Here's the the, the cons of of that perspective, or the, the most important con. Much of what Jesus said regarding... The the elements at war with each other and the coming of the Son of Man did not, in fact, take place for that first generation. And so option one is tricky. Option two, some people say when Jesus referred to this generation, he wasn't talking about the people who were listening to him that day. He was looking into the future and describing a future generation, saying this generation that I'm seeing in my mind's eye, you know, 4,000 years down the road, those people we'll see all these things take place. Well, there's a problem with that perspective because some of the things that Jesus was predicting had taken place in AD 70. And so if he's speaking about a future generation, well, they wouldn't have seen those things in their day and age because they had already taken place in the first century. Uh, Here's option three, and I really think it offers the best read of this particular passage Uh, When Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, he is using it or defining it elastically. Elastically, rather than literally. In other words, the first generation, that is the people that were being addressed by Jesus in that moment, would see many of those things that Jesus had predicted, but not all of them. And the later generation would also see some other bits of what Jesus was predicting, namely his second coming. 
I want to think about that with you just for a moment because end time, end time lingo within the New Testament is almost always elastic. Almost always. Take, for example, Acts chapter 2. This is the early church. Jesus had died, risen again, ascended, and now sends the Holy Spirit upon the church. What does that cause Peter to do? Peter gets up in front of thousands of people and starts preaching an apocalyptic end-time sermon. He becomes like one of those crazy people at a football game, you know, holding up the sign from some passage from Revelation. But this is what Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost. In these last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. There's Peter 2,000 years ago talking about the last days, and he thinks that he's in the midst of them, the last days. Why would he define a moment 2,000 years ago as the last days? It's because for Peter, everything after the death and resurrection of Jesus, those are the last days. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus was, for the authors of the New Testament, the apocalypse. If you want to know about where the apocalypse is located in scripture, it's that moment where Jesus dies and rises again. Everything after that is enveloped under the term the last days. That was the apocalypse and we are living in the midst of it. And so I simply want to assert that regarding end time chronology, Jesus' use of the word this generation is somewhat elastic. He may be speaking about the generation of believers. He may be speaking about uh, the generation of uh, of those who would uh, come after him, follow him, and be involved in his body, which crosses boundaries, not only of geography, but of time. It stretches from Jesus' death and resurrection and the generation that saw those things to the final generation that will ever live and breathe on this planet. You know, someone once wrote that biblical apocalyptic predictions and biblical apocalyptic language are rather like mountain ranges. When you are driving toward the Rockies, which sadly I have yet to do, but I hear this is true, uh, when you're driving toward them, it all looks like one layer of mountains until you're within them. And then you realize, oh no, there are multiple layers of mountains and we may never escape. Uh, they may go on forever. The same is true of uh, apocalyptic literature within scripture and it seems Jesus' language of generations. So Schweitzer needed not to lose his confidence in Christ uh, Christ is using apocalyptic language in a broad way. Something about chronology. Now something about chaos, and this is really the heart of the matter. I invite you to take up your bulletins, follow along with me as I read from verse 25. This is Jesus sitting in the temple giving dire warnings to people that place too much confidence in temples and structures and security. He, he's now going to shake up their world. In verse 25, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So Jesus is predicting here full-scale, unmistakable chaos that is worldwide uh, in, its, uh, in its appearance. These chaotic signs are not subtle. You know, sometimes I hear people speaking about spirituality that way. You know, God spoke to me in my wind chimes. Uh, I, I, I saw, you know, I saw something collect in the tea leaves of my, of my mug. 
Um, somebody just said that to me two weeks ago. I'm like, that's very interesting. I don't know what to do with that, but look at the time. Um, but, but these chaotic signs are not subtle. They're not very wind chimey. They are colossal and obvious, involving all of the major elements that were mentioned in the account of creation in Genesis 1. All of these things go back to Genesis 1 language, right? Sun, moon, stars, seas, powers of the heavens. Even nations comes along later in Genesis. But the the whole notion is all of those core elements of the created order will be affected in an obvious way. Uh, This is very common language in the Old Testament prophets. Whenever there's about to be chaos unleashed upon the world, they use very strong language to to make the point. They talk about the moon being covered in blood. You know, they talk about mountains falling into the sea, that sort of thing. Well, Jesus is piggybacking on that language and employing it here to suggest to all of us there will come a day when the scaffolding that upholds creation, scaffolding that we depend upon for everything, will be taken down and things will collapse to quote Yeats, right? Things fall apart because the center did not hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. There's something unholy that's, that, that's going to increase in the world in such a way that creation starts to collapse. Um, it's like the hand of God's blessing, his providential structures that are placed upon creation to minimize chaotic energy and satanic energy within the world starts to uh, withdraw. And as God's providential ordering hand withdraws, chaos is birth. The the satanic energy increases. Uh, You may remember that the the Satan in scripture is often likened to a wild, untamed beast, like a sea serpent or a dragon or a lion that is not driven by goodness, but rather driven by instincts without regard to boundaries. Uh, And so there's chaos, massive, wide-scale chaos that will be loosed upon the world. And I am not a person of predictions. I I, I don't have a lot of time for television prophets that speak about the exact days or times of the apocalypse, the, 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 the climactic moment of what is certainly to come. Many people who do that on TV do that to make money. And you may know this, that, uh, that John Calvin refused to write uh, two commentaries in his uh, biblical commentary series, and he refused to write on the apocalyptic portions of the book of Daniel, and he refused to write one on the book of Revelation because he was afraid of where people would take that data, and he was afraid people would make apocalyptic predictions. And I'm not making those predictions, but I'm wondering if you can sense that kind of chaos just in your gut about certain things within our times, not everything, but certain things, but the scaffolding that used to be there is like no longer there. Uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, who is a, a fascinating uh, author, he's been put under death threats many times, but he's, a, he's written um, some very helpful things. But this is what he wrote about his time in the United States. This is the way things are these days in America. The world at some point stopped making sense. And now anything can happen. Here can be there, then can be now, up can be down, truth can be lies, everything's slip sliding around, and there's nothing to hold on to, and the whole thing has come apart at the seams. 
That's the energy of what Jesus is communicating here, that everything is going to be chaotic. And, and so Jesus is warning us, so creation will become uncreation. Things that you have expected will become inverted. Uh, the very certainties that you depend upon to like structure your life and your well-being will be taken away. It's heavy. But he doesn't leave us comfortless because he talks about consummation. So we have chronology, chaos, and then consummation. Consummation is when something is finalized. And the thing that is finalized or has the last word is not the, the, the satanic energy or the dynamic that's threatening to unmake us. Uh, it's Christ. This is verse 27 regarding consummation. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, he calls himself here again the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel 7. Uh, David Beck preached about that last Sunday. If you haven't listened to that sermon, go ahead and do so. The Son of Man is a God figure, actually. It's a human God figure in this Old Testament book. And this human God figure stands before God the Father. And this human God figure is worshipped and adored and becomes the king of a kingdom. And that kingdom, unlike all the other kingdoms of the earth, will have no end. Um, and this Son of Man figure is going to descend. He's going to appear and when he does, uh, redemption is drawing nigh. Now, um, I want you to learn this lesson tonight. If you have one takeaway, uh, maybe, maybe this could be it. Chaos is certain, but it is not definitive. Chaos is certain, but it is not definitive. The Son of Man is the only one who has the power over the dimming sun and the falling stars. Because he made them all. He's the only one with the power over the chaos. And I think this is, by the way, the difference between believers and uh, non-believers, at least on this point. When we see chaos, we don't automatically have to live in an everlasting panic attack. When we see chaos, we can say, no, 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 we know all about it. We were warned that it will get this bad. We were told that this was a certainty. But we also know that chaos is a tell. Not a tell that evil will prevail, but that evil's about to die. It's the last, you know, burst of the asteroid as it enters the atmosphere before it fizzles into nothing. It's a tell that evil has done its worst and is about to collapse in on itself like a dying star. And this is why Jesus says, whenever you hear all this bad news, whenever you feel like your world is imploding, whenever you're worried about your kids and how they're going to grow up, you know, whenever you worry about the news and whenever you uh, feel in your bones that the world is changing and you can't keep up and you're just exhausted all the time, straighten up your back, he says. Straighten up your back and lift up your head. That be in an expectant posture, not a depressed posture, but an expectant posture because your redemption is drawing near. Things are coming closer now. You're about to be happier now. Things are going to get better. Right? You know, sometimes I hear Advent preachers, they, you know, they, they rightly tell us to be ready for the second coming of Christ. What do they mean? I don't know. I'm not sure what they mean. 
I'm not sure what I mean. How does one become ready for such a thing? It's complicated, isn't it? Uh, but, but one thing I do know, one thing being ready must mean, it must mean living with a wild anticipation, like a wide-eyed expectancy that no matter how bad things get, no matter how crummy we feel on the inside, no matter how tired we are and afraid we've become, uh, we live as if chaos, as if chaos is not definitive. We live as if the Leviathan must die at some point. Uh, we live with the knowledge that the Son of Man is coming our way because he promised that he was coming our way. It means living in light of hope. So, something about chronology and chaos and consummation. And I want to conclude with a word about anxiety. A word about anxiety, because I think uh, the season of Advent dress, uh, directly addresses our anxiety. You know, Jesus describes people in this passage who, under the weight of chaos, have a particular emotional and physical response. He says that they are fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. So I'm wondering what makes you want to pass out. Check out. Move to Boulder. It's not better in Boulder, though. I'm just telling you, they just have more pot. But it's not better. It's not better. So what is it for you? Um, what chaos makes you uh, fray at the edges? What signs make you tremble? When you watch the news, what scares you to death? Is it the dissolution of the American family, and more locally, that messy divorce in your own family that will surely ruin Christmas for like eight years in a row? Is it the polarization of our nation or our world, or more locally, the fact that you haven't spoken with half your family in a year because of their off-base political opinions? Is it the decline of Western Christianity, or more locally, the fact that your children have drifted into a petulant secularism? Uh, is it the opioid academic, epidemic, or more locally, the thing that killed your cousin? Is it the next strain of COVID, since, friends, it's here to stay? You know, a weary friend recently said to me, Ethan, I'm terrified. And I asked, of what? And she said, everything, <laughs> everything. Well, can I offer a challenging and prophetic word to you tonight and to myself tonight? Sometimes, sometimes, we are hyper-anxious and fixated and hijacked because we are frenetically trying to safeguard and defend and overmanage the very things that Jesus said will certainly pass away. He said it in our passage tonight, didn't he? He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What is he saying? Everything is fragile and more fragile than you think. And so are you, but my word will not pass away. What I have to offer the world will never dissolve into nothingness. By the way, this is a hard lesson for me in the past 15 years. I used to, you know, I used to give my anxiety a pass. I used to say, this is just how I am, you know. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> and it felt really good to say that because I'm like, good, half of my life that's miserable. It's okay, though. You know, because I didn't wake up one day and sign a form that said, oh, this is what I want. No, 
this is a rebuke to myself, and I'm not saying all anxiety is terrible or whatever, but for me, much of my panic and anxiety and fixation is rooted in unbelief. It's just that shallow, because I, I don't think I'll be helped. I don't know if that's true for you, but here is the sobering truth of Advent, that Jesus' predictions indicate, among other things, that chaos is inevitable and that it's likely to increase rather than decrease. This means, consequently, you will not build the utopia. All those horrible speakers who told you at your graduation that you were going to go out there and make a big dent have lied to you. I know it's a downer, but you won't build the utopia. You're not going to recycle enough, you know. You won't do it. You'll throw a lot of things away that should be recycled. You won't slow the tech boom, no matter how many devices you throw away. And you've not thrown away any, by the way. <laughs> like, all the Luddites that I know, like, just they're ashamed that they use technology, but they still use it. Um, right? You won't fix the world, and you won't even fix your lives to the degree that you want to, but enter Advent. Right? Advent is not about our ability to maintain or protect or improve. Advent is about Christ. Advent is about Christ. It's about the Christ who made a vow, a vow to still the warring seas and to light up the darkening sun to make all things new. It's about his rescue plan. It's about the fact that he's coming our way. And so my hope for you and for myself is that we look upon the, the only one who can provide solace because he's not shaken with the qualities of our times. He's utterly immovable. You know, at the conclusion of the two towers, uh, the fortress of Helm's Deep is devastated almost entirely by this invasive horde of villains. And nearly all of the soldiers are brutally slaughtered. And the armies of darkness have approached the very small last chamber, the keep of the fortress, in order to kill the king with his remnant companions. And there are like 12 of them. Well, in despair, the king says, hope has now died. What can men do against such reckless hate? But Gimli, you know, the little dwarf, who in the movie offers the comedic element, he stares up at this open window, and he starts to smile, and he says rather confidently, yes, but the sun is rising. And on the horizon, Gandalf does appear with 5,000 cavalrymen and they cascade down the mountain toward Helm's Deep and decimate the entire army of evil, freeing the king, and because of that, saving the world. And it all happened, as Gandalf promised, on the fifth day, at dawn, look to the east. Friends, this is the message of Advent. Take your eyes for once off of the wild waves and the dimming stars, and stare instead at the promising blood-ridden, resurrected, returning Christ, for we are not abandoned. You are not abandoned. So comrades, brothers and sisters, look to the east. The sun is rising. Amen. Amen.